Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. Two dead bodies are found under mysterious circumstances with lead masks over their eyes. What is the truth of the lead mask case? August 20th, 1966, a young boy called Jorge de Costa Alves was playing on Vindem Hill in Niteroi, just outside of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. While flying his kite, Jorge stumbled upon a gruesome discovery, the bodies of two men lying side by side on the hill. They were wearing matching suits and raincoats, and on their faces lay two homemade masks, carved from lead into the shape of sunglasses and resting over the eyes of the dead men. Tough terrain prevented police from investigating the scene until the following day, but when they finally arrived and set to work with their investigation, they found a note lying beside the bodies. Translated from Portuguese, the note reads, 4.30, be at the determined place. 6.30, swallow capsules, after effect, protect metals wait for mask sign. Also in their possession was an empty water bottle, with its receipt, two towels, and a small amount of cash. The men were identified as Miguel Jose Viana, 34, and Manuel Pereira de Cruz, 32, two electronic technicians. As their last steps were traced, investigators learned that the two men arrived in Niteroi by bus on August 17, 1966. In a local store, they purchased their two raincoats, and in a local bar, they purchased a single bottle of water, saving the receipts in order to return their empty bottle later and collect their deposit back. Two witnesses report that the men looked nervous during these transactions, frequently checking their watch as though they were running late for something. And, despite the implications created by the note, swallow capsules, the coroner's report showed no poison in their systems, and their official cause of death was given as cardiac arrest, and nothing more than that. Two men in their thirties just sat down and simultaneously died of natural causes. Seems likely. That, astoundingly, is it. If you enjoyed this episode, you can hear more on our website, which it- okay, no, I'm kidding. I debated including this mystery at all, because it's so short and there is so little information, but it's quite a popular case, and the lack of info is really what makes it so interesting. I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about this, so be sure to head to daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks and let us know what you think in the comments. There are two main categories that theories fall into with this mystery. The first is aliens, because of course it is. I mean, a hill in the middle of nowhere, bright light or radiation, the bodies lying side by side after an apparently peaceful death, 
The whole thing screams abduction or contact of some kind with some extraterrestrial entity. Because the behaviour of the two men in the hours leading up to their deaths implies a clear intent, it's generally thought that they were actively trying to contact aliens in some way and that they succeeded, with said contact somehow bringing about their demise. Beyond that, there's not much else we can fill in. The time between UFO touchdown and the victims' deaths remains a void in our knowledge. The second theory places the men at the mercy of an intense belief in aliens or New Age beliefs of some kind, or that they were members of some kind of cult. The idea is that, despite alien visitations being nothing but unproven stories, the two victims were convinced that they were true and wanted to get in contact with some kind of alien or godlike creature. Then, through unknown events, they end up dead. You'll notice that our two different theories here are not really different theories at all. They're just the same theory repackaged, depending on whether you fall into the camp that aliens are real or not. Personally, I don't, and so I find the latter idea much more believable. But does either theory hold up? Well, first of all, there's a few things I think are worth noting in this case. Firstly, if you read about this case online, you will inevitably read about the butchered grammar of the note found by the bodies. Every source I've seen has mentioned this, clarifying that the grammar doesn't make sense in Portuguese either, and that it's not the result of poor translation. This doesn't really have any bearing on the case, but it does give off a vibe. Specifically, a vibe that these men were not in their right minds. Maybe that's just me looking too deep into this, but the idea that they wrote this borderline incoherent note with their last hours on Earth conjures up an image of two men, potentially manic, who are detached somewhat from reality and not able to string a sentence together properly. And I think that this is therefore used as a contributing piece of evidence to the theory that they were trying to make contact with some mythical creature. However, I don't know if this is just me, but the grammar in the note seems fine. I mean, let's reread. 4.30, be at the determined place. 6.30, swallow capsules. After effect, protect metals. Wait for mask sign. I'll grant you it's no Pulitzer winner and the grammar is certainly disjointed, but we have to look at the context. These aren't sentences. Not full sentences anyway. This is a schedule, a list. You don't write your shopping list in full, grammatically correct sentences, do you? If I was writing instructions to myself, for example, I might write 2.30, turkey in oven. 3.30, after peeling, boil potatoes, check vegetables. Does this really sound any different to the note that they found in the lead mask case? I don't think so. And I've probably already spent far too much time on this minor piece of evidence, but I just wanted to point out that the grammar of the note isn't really of notes in this case. So moving on, the second thing I want to talk about is the masks themselves. You'll often see these referred to online as some sort of radiation mask, or masks to guard against some bright light of some kind, but those conclusions don't really make sense. Eyewear to protect from bright light, for example, still needs to be at least somewhat translucent. The entire point is to allow you to see something without dangerous levels of light. Lead won't let anything through, so these masks can't 
be used to protect from bright light. At least not if you still want to see anything, and if you don't, why not just turn away? As for radiation, that makes a little more sense, as lead eyewear would certainly protect your eyes from radiation at least a little, but why, in that case, would only the eyes need protection? If the radiation is strong enough to pass through your body and damage organs without the protection of lead, wouldn't there be a desperate need to protect other parts of the body too? But here these men are, exposing themselves to potentially dangerous levels of radiation, and protecting only their eyes. It doesn't add up, and unfortunately, I'm not sure there's an answer to the question. The final thing I would like to note is that the information in this case, all of the information, is not particularly verifiable, and it's not necessarily reliable. Even the rare bits of info that we do know, we don't know for certain. For example, some sources say that the amount of money found implied that the men had spent a large amount of money. Other sources don't mention this. Some say that the masks were found on their eyes, others say they were found beside their bodies. Most sources agree in their descriptions of the bodies, that they were lying on a hill in a somewhat peaceful position, side by side. But even that could be hearsay, and there's no way to verify where the bodies died, how they were found, or what the weather conditions were like that day. Additionally, I have to question one of the more concrete facts in this case. The coroner's report. Sources seem to suggest that the coroner's report showed no trace of drugs in their systems, and that the deaths were put down to unexplained heart failure. I have to question the veracity of this. I've seen no documentation to back up any of these claims, I haven't seen the coroner's report with my own eyes, and there are just too many questions. What was post-mortem investigation like in Brazil in 1966? Was it thorough? Were toxicology reports standard and likely to have been done? What did the analysis of heart tissue show? How long had the men been dead? What was the process of archiving information in 1966 Brazil, and how have their systems changed since? Where would these files be now? And have any people reporting on this ever seen them? To be totally honest, my confidence in the medical findings being accurate is so low that I almost want to exclude it as evidence entirely. So, since I'm dumping all my opinions on you anyway, what do I think happened? Well, let's look at the evidence and see what we can confirm for certain. I'll exclude the medical information for reasons I've stated, and I also have to leave out the eyewitness accounts, as they reek of leading questions to me. So, two men arrive in Niteroi by bus on August 17th. They purchased raincoats and a single bottle of water, which they intended to return later. They travelled to Vintem Hill, where they intended to do something involving lead masks. As a result, they died. Their final actions in their own words. Swallow capsules. After effect, protect metals. Wait for mask sign. I think buying nothing but a single bottle of water suggests that this description of events is accurate, and the men needed a drink to swallow their pills with. Their intention to return the bottle, I believe, is genuine as their note implies that they expect to be unharmed by the mystery drug, and that they will feel its effects before moving on to the next steps of the plan. It seems to me that whatever they ingested, they intended to survive it. Next, protect metals. We don't really know what this means. 
It would seem to refer to the masks, as there were no other metals present. It sounds as though it's a verb, but I wonder if this is a problem with translation, or a case of meaning changing through tellings like a game of telephone. Is protect, I wonder, being used as a noun? Protection metals, or protective metals. Finally, wait for mask sign. That, unfortunately, I have no idea about. It's far too vague and could refer to anything, from aliens to natural phenomena. I do wonder, though, if it's referring to some kind of weather phenomenon that the men might have been chasing, as their purchase of raincoats would imply that they were expecting some extreme weather that evening. But either way, that's the chain of events as certain as we can be. These men bought raincoats and water, travelled to Vintem Hill, ingested a substance, prepared to use their masks, and awaited some sort of sign. So does this fit the usual theories? Kind of. The events do seem to imply some sort of natural event is going to happen, and the strange behaviour and drug consumption does imply some sort of spiritual connection. There is also mild evidence to back this theory up in the form of Hermes Louis Fitosa, a man who died in similar circumstances four years earlier in 1962. He was found with a similar handcrafted lead mask over his eyes, dead, with no apparent cause of death and no toxicology findings. This would seem to corroborate the idea that this case has something to do with some kind of cult belief. However, if you thought the lead mask case was lacking in verifiable details, the case of Fitosa is even flimsier. There is nothing to back up the condition of his body, or the findings of the autopsy, if one was even performed. There is no clear answer on where this happened. Some say it was on the same hill, some say a different hill. There's not even any date for his death, just an incredibly vague 1962. Without some actual documentation, I just don't think this evidence is even worth considering, unfortunately. Which leaves us with basically no idea what happened at Vintem Hill in 1966. And it seems unlikely that any new evidence is going to come to light at this point. And speculation is all that we have. So, with that in mind, what do you think? Weird. Science. When I want to track a workout, or my diet, or my sleep, I grab my phone and I launch the health app. You're probably familiar with the icon, a little red heart against a white background. A relatively simple symbol for such a vast meaning, but it's no surprise that the heart has become a symbol for health, and for life itself. Its beating is certainly the most immediate sign of life chugging along, and for a long time, its cessation was the sign which demarcated life and death. The heart's importance, and the necessity that it continues to beat at all costs, made heart surgery a particularly difficult hurdle for medical science to overcome. But that threshold was finally crossed on September 9th, 1896. A 22-year-old man named Wilhelm Justice was found by police collapsed and soaked in blood. He'd been stabbed in the chest during a fight, and despite the hospital's best attempts to treat him, the weapon had penetrated Justice's heart. 
Surgeon Ludwig Rain would open Justice up and suture the two centimeter laceration in his patient's beating heart, the first surgery to be conducted directly on a human heart. It turned what might, just a few years earlier, have been a deadly wound into a story that Justice would go on and share. Despite a post-surgery infection, Justice would recover fully. The big hurdle for heart surgery lay not with the heart itself, but with the brain. Many surgeries require the patient's heartbeat to be ended in order to allow the surgeons to get on with their delicate work. But when the brain is starved of oxygen for more than three to four minutes, brain damage begins to set in, and the most common heart surgeries require much more time than that. C. Walton Lillehay was determined to find a way around this limitation. Inspired by the shared bloodstream between mother and fetus, Lillehay set to work implementing a version of this in dogs. Initial experiments were resounding failures, resulting in severe brain damage, but later attempts were successful and very promising. The premise was simple. Lillehay would connect the bloodstreams of two dogs, then inject potassium into the heart of one of the dogs to end its pulse, clamping off the arteries and veins to separate the organ from the animal's circulatory system. Sure enough, the second dog's heart picked up the slack and kept blood flow going for both animals. Lillehay would then restart the first dog's heart and wake it up. When they began to wake up well and undamaged, he knew that he was onto something. By 1954, he was determined to try his surgery on humans. Moral concerns created a lot of pushback, but Lillehay had some supporters, including the parents of 13-month-old Gregory Gleedon, a child suffering from a congenital heart condition. The couple had already lost a daughter to the same condition just a few years earlier, and they were desperate for any treatment that would save their son from the same fate. And so, Lillehay put Gregory and his father to sleep opened them up, and connected their bloodstreams. Then, he stopped Gregory's heart and began the operation, while his father's heart kept blood flowing to his brain and organs. The surgery was a success. Gregory's heart was repaired, and the two patients woke up with no damage. A few days later, however, Gregory contracted pneumonia and died. His autopsy showed a chest infection was the cause of his death, but it also revealed that his heart remained healthy and the surgery was a complete success. Many viewed this tragic case as a failure, but Lillehay was undeterred and pressed on. Just two weeks later, Lillehay performed the procedure once again, this time on a four-year-old girl. Her heart was separated from her circulatory system for 14 minutes while her father kept her alive. Both of them would recover fully following the surgery. Ultimately, Lillehay performed his procedure 45 times with 28 long-term survivors. Years prior to this, John Haitian Gibbon Jr. envisioned an entirely different solution to the same problem. Gibbon imagined a machine that could replace the heart entirely. Blood would flow from the patient into a rotating cylinder with an atmosphere of pure oxygen, where red blood cells would become oxygenated, and then the freshly oxygenated blood would flow back into the patient. 
early experiments used cats and proved to be a success. Gibbon published a paper on his invention in 1939, 15 years before Lillehay began his surgeries on humans. By the mid-1950s, multiple hospitals were engaged in trying to create a fully functional heart-lung machine, and around this time, Gibbon had the chance to perform bypass surgery for the first time. He performed an operation on a 15-month-old girl, only to find during the surgery that she had been misdiagnosed. She would then die of complications of the, it turns out, completely unnecessary heart surgery. But Gibbon's second attempt on an 18-year-old woman was a complete success, with the patient living to the age of 65. We'll skip ahead now to South Africa, December 3rd, 1967. That day, Denise Darvall was hit by a car and flung a great distance. She suffered a severe head injury, and by the time she arrived at the hospital, she was already brain dead. Denise's heart, however, was strong and healthy. The doctors knew that a patient in the same hospital was in dire need of a transplant. They explained the situation to Denise's father, Edward, whose reaction is described in the book Every Second Counts by Donald McRae. Edward Darvall said later that in the four minutes it took him to reach his decision, he thought only of his daughter. He remembered a birthday cake that she had once made for him. She had carved a heart into the icing and written the words, Daddy, we love you, across the top of the cake. He also remembered that, with her first week's salary from the bank, she had bought him a bathrobe. That was Denise. That was his girl. That was how he would always think of her. She was full of love. She always wanted to give rather than take. He knew that the world needed more people like her. And now Denise and her mother were lost to him. He began to cry, and he knew in that moment what needed to be done. After composing himself, he summoned the doctors back into the small room. They could never forget his words. If you can't save my daughter, Edward Darvall said, you must try and save this man. Despite Edward's kind decision, the case was not so legally black and white, as South African law used the heart to define life and death. Brain death had not yet been legally recognised as the end of life, and as far as the law was concerned, Denise was alive. But soon enough, Denise's heart would stop, and the transplant would go ahead under surgeon Christian Barnard, with assistance from his brother, Marius Barnard. For 40 years, the exact reason Denise's heart finally gave up was unknown, until Marius admitted the truth, that Christian knowing what needed to be done, had injected the heart with potassium to legally end Denise's life. The recipient of the heart, Louis Wyszkanski, 55, had incurable heart disease and had already suffered three heart attacks. The search for a donor heart had begun in November, and on December 3rd, the journey was over. Barnard performed the procedure, and Wyszkanski received his new heart. Louis died 18 days after the operation. He'd contracted a chest infection, worsened by a weakened immune system because of anti-rejection drugs he'd been taking since day five. But 
Despite his tragic end, Wyshkansky had been awake and alert in the days following the surgery. He was able to speak with his wife and with the press. The surgery, despite the events that followed, was a success. Another boundary had been crossed and heart surgery was revolutionized once again. What we see following the journey from the first heart surgery in 1896 to the first transplant in 1967 is a sad list of fatalities. But those fatalities carry hope. They paved the way for the greatest advancements towards fighting humanity's biggest killer. I don't know if this really qualified for weird science. It's more just interesting science. But I thought it was a fascinating story, and I hope you did too. I found much of the information in this segment in a wonderful book simply titled Heart by Sandeep Jaha, which dives deep into the history of the heart, both in medical terms as well as societal and symbolically. It also dives much deeper into some of those moral questions about what is and what isn't justified in the search for treatments that save lives. If you found this segment interesting, you'll probably enjoy the book too, and I highly recommend it. Not only is it fascinating, but Jaoha is an excellent storyteller, and I want to close off this segment with a brief excerpt from Hart, where Jaoha describes his experience of the September 11th attacks. On my way downtown the previous afternoon, with a caravan of doctors from Bellevue, I'd braced myself to confront throngs of seriously injured people, but there was no one around except for rescue workers. Where are all the patients? I blurted out when I arrived, thinking they might be in a different location. They're all dead, a colleague replied. Now we sat in a haze, ash still falling like snow, trading stories. A physician told me he'd happened to be standing outside the first tower when it collapsed. I ran under a bridge, he said. There was huge debris falling all around me. Every step I took, I kept saying to myself, I can't believe I'm not dead yet. I can't believe I'm not dead yet. Then he began to hear strange thuds. Those, a firefighter told him, were people jumping off buildings. We sat for hours, waiting for something to happen. Then, in the early afternoon, came word that a victim, a young woman, had been found in the rubble. An American flag was hoisted at the site, and rescue workers began the painstaking work of extricating her. By late afternoon, about 50 doctors and other workers had formed a human chain from the street to the top of the rubble, several stories high, and were passing down debris, piece by piece, Two large cranes with huge jaws then took the shrapnel and transferred it to waiting trucks. I stayed until evening, hoping to help in some way, but I'd spent the better part of two days at the site, away from my worried wife, and I was exhausted. They were still working when I left. For weeks after I returned to work that fall, the smell of dead bodies wafted from the morgue tents set up at 1st and 29th outside Bellevue. I'd been cutting through the street to get to conferences at the main hospital, but no more. Then, one day, I heard that the victim who'd been saved at Ground Zero was on a cardiac arrhythmia service, and not because of her broken leg. After her rescue, recurrent ventricular arrhythmias inexplicably set in, causing her to keep passing out. Medications couldn't suppress the arrhythmias, psychological counselling hadn't helped, 
and surgical options, including an implantable defibrillator, were being considered. By the late fall, she was on the catheterization table as electrophysiologists at Bellevue tried to figure out what had gone wrong inside her heart. It would be an understatement to say that Anne Boleyn had an eventful life, and, frankly, an eventful death. It's the end of Anne Boleyn's life that's probably had the biggest effect in permanently imprinting her story on the public consciousness. And almost 500 years after she took her final breath, she's still said to live on in numerous locations. Even her position as Queen of England hasn't stopped time from erasing many details of Boleyn's life. She was born at Blickling Hall in Norfolk, sometime between 1501 and 1507. Growing up in France, before returning to her native England in 1522. In 1533, she married King Henry VIII, who, of course, had split England from the Catholic Church in order to end his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. Within six months, Boleyn was crowned Queen of England. Later that year, the couple's first child, Elizabeth, was born. Two unsuccessful pregnancies followed, and Boleyn's perceived failure to deliver the son that Henry craved created a greater and greater distance between them as Henry began to pursue Jane Seymour, his soon-to-be third wife. On May 19, 1536, Anne was dead, executed on charges of adultery, incest, and treason, accusations which have been debated ad nauseum ever since. Whether there was any truth in them, or whether they were completely fabricated to provide Henry with an exit from a marriage he had long since moved on from, will never be known for certain. The great stature of Anne's title, the gruesome nature of her death, and the mystery surrounding her downfall have all contributed to her story's presence in the cultural consciousness, even all these years later, and nowhere has it presented itself more than her supposed returns from the grave. As the place of Anne's death, the Tower of London has naturally become a place associated with her restless spirit. The most famous sighting occurred in 1864, when a guard spotted a strange white figure. The guard, assuming she was an intruder, charged at the figure with his bayonet, only to pass right through her. Anne is also said to haunt the grounds of the Church of St. Peter ad Vincula, which sits on the grounds of the Tower of London, and is Anne's place of burial. Her spirit has been spotted walking towards the altar, beneath which she is buried. In one common story, the captain of the guard investigated a flickering light within the church, trying to find its source. As he gazed through the window and into the church, he was surprised to see a ghostly procession of knights and ladies in 16th century dress parading through the chapel, led by Anne Boleyn who the captain of the guard reportedly recognised from paintings. Although there is little reason to doubt that the Church of St. Peter is Anne's final resting place, and despite the fact that her body was exhumed from the chapel in 1876, rumours have persisted that Anne actually lies in the grounds of Saul Church in Norfolk. The legend says that her body was secretly removed from the Tower of London, under cover of night, and moved to Saul, 
close to Anne's birthplace, Blickling Hall. More adventurous versions of the story suggest that while Anne's body lies at the Church of St. Peter at Vincula, her heart was removed and, at her request, buried at Saul Church. These rumours seem to have begun spreading in the mid-19th century, a good three centuries after Anne was executed and long after she'd faded from living memory. So they do, of course, have to be taken with a great pinch of salt. But nonetheless, multiple people have claimed to see the spectre of Anne Boleyn roaming the church grounds of Saul, Norfolk. The nearby Blickling Hall has also sprouted multiple ghostly sightings from its connection to Anne and the Boleyn family. Most famously, Anne's spirit is said to return to the place of her birth every year on May 19th, the anniversary of her death. The legend says that a headless Anne, carrying her head in her own lap, approaches the manor by carriage, pulled by a headless horseman. Upon arriving at the house, the carriage then vanishes into thin air. There is also a similar legend, which says that, upon news of Anne's execution reaching Blickling Hall, four headless horsemen were seen dragging a headless man across Norfolk. Anne has also been spotted roaming the halls of Windsor Castle, the official residence of the monarch of the UK, which has a history of its own stretching back a millennia to William the Conqueror's invasion of England. Some people have claimed to have snapped a picture of the late Queen's ghost at Windsor Castle, and in one memorable story, Anne was spotted running down the halls of the castle, clutching in her arms her own detached, screaming head. Finally, Anne has been spotted at Hever Castle in Kent, where she spent most of her early childhood. The castle would then pass to Henry VIII after the death of Anne's father, and Henry, in a somewhat cruel twist of fate, gave away the castle as part of his settlement with his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, making Anne's childhood home the home of her successor. Anne is said to appear at Hever Castle during the Christmas season, Anne's favourite time of year, and her spirit has been spotted beneath the great oak tree on the grounds, where she and Henry were said to have spent a great deal of time. Rarely does a ghost appear in so many places, and it makes you wonder about the very nature of ghosts. Are they, as many people believe, a soul separated from its body? If so, one would expect a ghost to haunt only one location. But Anne seems to manifest in many places at once. Perhaps then, ghosts are not part of a person at all, but instead a kind of echo or shadow, an imprint on the physical world. It would explain why a spirit like Anne's could appear in so many places that played such large roles in her life and death. Thinking more scientifically, of course, the answer is simple. Rarely does a story capture public attention as that of Anne Boleyn's life, death and notoriety. And she's famous now for her post-mortem appearances, so it's no surprise at all that so many people would claim to have seen her spirit. If you believe in ghosts, and you see something odd in a location famed for its connection to the Boleyn family, well, who are you going to assume it is? All we know for certain is that whether it's ghostly processions or screaming heads, Anne Boleyn is not going to fade from public consciousness anytime soon.
that's everything we've got for you today. But we'll have another mystery, another spooky encounter, and some fun science facts for you waiting in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is fearbyzoinks. And you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we love a rating and a review on whichever app you're using. It would really help us out as it helps new listeners find us. But for now, that's all. So until next time, stay spooky.